Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. My guest today had a career in sales and marketing, but found inspiration in a genealogy search on her great-great-grandfather. He took an active part in founding the Woman's Medical College in Philadelphia. The early graduates of the Woman's Medical College have remained in the shadows. Their stories needed to be told. So our guest honed her skills polished her manuscript, and readied it for publication, splitting her time between Cape Cod, New Hampshire, and Florida. A tablet became her Kindle librarian desk, packed into a travel bag for reading and writing wherever she might land. More adventures beckon her to document other women in history whose stories need to be discovered. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Janice Robinson Daly. Thank you so much, Julia, for having me on today. It's a pleasure to connect with you. Thank you, Janice. Our opening question on Authors Over 50 is always, what took you so long to write a book? Oh, that age-old question. And I think many of the listeners uh, who tune in probably can relate to the term and the throes of life called the sandwich generation. Um, That's exactly where I found myself graduating from college and soon thereafter, not only getting married and starting my own family, but also dealing and caring for elderly parents um, at the same time that between the two of them took up a good 15 years (laughs) Um, at the same time, working full time with my sons, very active in sports as well. So I guess one delay was just the, the time, no time, no energy, and really no ideas until I had the last one graduate college and sat down and said, now what? It's, it's my chapter. It's my turn. And it's my time. And what am I going to do with it? And so that's when, as you mentioned, I started some genealogy research and found the discovery of the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania. And then I had my idea and said, I need to get started. I need to write a book. I need to bring these women graduates who are so brave and and daring for the time, late 1800s, and and bring them forward onto pages and share their stories. Um, So instead of picking up a golf club or a tennis racket in the empty nest syndrome, I I picked up my, my Kindle and did some research and started some online creative writing classes. Um, and get started in an activity that keeps my rear in the chair instead (laughs) of out on the golf course. 
Well, it's very special that your great, great grandfather was your inspiration. Absolutely. And you're writing historical fiction about a medical college at a time when only 5% of doctors were female. How do you balance fact and fiction? Always a struggle for that historical fiction author because um, we are drawn to history. We love history. We love research. We think everybody will want to know every single fact and detail that we discover and want to put it on the page. But at the end of the day, it's sitting down and really closely analyzing those facts and how are they going to contribute to a story? How are they going to move that story forward? How are they going to develop a character? Um, So although I may find all those facts fascinating, everybody else may not. And you don't want to bog down the story. You want the pace to to keep going. You want people turning the pages. Um, So there's plenty more than probably the 300 pages that I've written that are sitting in my files, my Word document files and note cards I have all over the place of some other interesting facts that didn't make the cut. Well, talking about what didn't make the cut, how did you determine the plot of your book? So I did uh, start with a specific time period. And although the school was founded in 1850, which, as you mentioned, my great-great-grandfather was one of the founders, uh, I chose a 23-year snippet of time of 1897 to 1920. Uh, The first idea for my plot was to be anchored by some really significant historical events that would impact my characters and give them some richness for how they would be dealing with some of those events. Everything from, you know, the turn of the century. Most of us have lived through a turn of the century, but what did that look like for 1900? Um, The suffrage movement, of course, for a women's medical college, those women were suffragists and were greatly influenced by the, the women who marched before them and marched alongside them in the late 1800s, right up until the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1919. So that was a a true pleasure to bring in and touch upon the suffrage movement. Of course, we also had the Spanish flu. And when we talk about a woman doctor, of course, she's going to be involved with with the effects of the Spanish flu in 1918. We had the sinking of the Titanic and I was very excited when I came up with the idea of how to weave that in to affect my character. And then finally, you know, World War I. Um, you know, my main character, Eliza Edwards is a, a mature woman uh, by the time we get to 1914, 1915 when the US got into the war in 1918. So um, how does that affect her and her family? So lots of great historical events to really center my plot around and then build from there. Did experiencing our own COVID influence how you wrote about the Spanish flu and other instances in in those times? Absolutely. Um, So I actually finished my writing uh, by the end of 2019 before any of us had any clue what was coming around the corner very quickly, uh, you know, as early as January, we were starting to get the inklings of, of COVID. And then within six to eight months, eight weeks later, boom, uh, we were living it. So I did go back and I, I revised that chapter of the Spanish flu, although I thought it was strong to begin with. 
um, after watching, you know, hours after hours on our television of our news reports and seeing the dedication of those medical professionals, you know, separated from their families, you know, plexiglass at home, them sleeping in their own basements or garages because they didn't want to infect their families. Um, I had to bring that, um, you know, very deep uh, perspective to my characters um, and especially Eliza because she's a mother at the point of the Spanish flu and, and how does that affect her of uh, wanting to serve to and be true to her calling to treat um, and remain within the medical field but also how does she deal with you know the impact it could have on her own young children so um, it, it was very rich and I did do um, some revisions to those chapters for sure. Janice, once you knew you had to write the book, how did you proceed? Did you search for an agent, decide to use a hybrid, small press, or self-publish? Um, all of the above <laughs> was in my consideration set. Um, of course, as a debut author, I had the dreams of you know finding that agent who was going to sell my work and find the right you know big five, big four, whatever we're looking at now with traditional publishing, um, and and that is always a struggle for for any author to find the right fit with an agent who believes in your story as much as you do, that they can turn it around and, and sell it to a publisher. Um, of course, I had the unfortunate timeline of querying agents by the end of 2020. And, you know, we were still all living through the incredible throes of, of COVID lockdowns and everything else. And so trying to capture the attention of an agent who may have checked out completely like so many of us had, or whose inbox was overflowing even more than usual with other writers who had finished manuscripts or even written <laughs> because they had extra time to write during uh, COVID lockdowns. So um, although I did get a few requests for full manuscript reads, um, the, the fit just wasn't there. And that's when I realized it was, it's very subjective. Of course, reading any piece of work is very subjective. Um, but I wanted my story told. And because it was so timely um, with our medical situation, I wanted that to happen sooner than later. So I did investigate hybrid, I considered self-publishing. Um, I'm still working full-time <laughs> in sales and marketing. So the self-publishing was, was too daunting and scary of taking on that project by myself. So I did end up um, querying a couple of independent presses, small indie presses, and was thrilled when I got a response from Black Rose Writing um, that they read my manuscript. They felt it was one of the first five-star reads they had looked at in a long time, um, so signed with them and then prepared for publication. And even that took nine months, you know, to get onto their schedule uh, as after we had a contract uh, signed up. Well, tell us a little bit more about the, the book and then read for us a section so we can hear your tone and voice in the book. Sure, I'd love to. So the Unlocked Path, again, is about the graduates of the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania, um, the brave and determined women who felt that calling to, to serve, especially because at the time, you know, in the 1800s, women were mistrustful of doctors, um, male doctors. Um, too many men dismissed their complaints and, you know, you may have heard, you know, in history about the hysteria, you know, the, 
you know, going back even to the Salem witch trials, you know, talking about a women's hysterics and it was medically caused um, with no basis for truth. So women were very mistrustful of doctors and would often not even seek out care, um, at least they'd be dismissed or, or waved away with ignorance by male doctors. So that really uh, was one point that compelled me to write was to, to show the lack of care, the lack of humanity that those women around the world faced um, and the mistrust. Uh, so there were women wanting to take care of women. And that circle of women is a very strong theme within the unlocked path. Not only from Eliza, again, my main character, her classmates and friends, but her wanting to serve and take care of other women. Um, so I do have a passage that I'd like to read that I, I've chosen it, even though it's a, a little bit later in the book, chapter 38, um, it is September 1918. Um, Eliza at this point is um, a doctor um, living in Boston. She does have a family and she um, of course reads the newspapers. Back then everybody still read the newspapers. You know, newspapers had two editions, the morning and evening edition, uh, because it was the source of, of all things going on um, around the world and around the country. And so every evening, um, Eliza reads the newspaper. She, she lives with her, her mo widowed mother lives with her. And, you know, Eliza reads a, a small snippet in the newspaper that doesn't get the big headlines of the World War One days of what was going on in France. And, and she's intrigued to read mm -hmm. that there were some um, strange illnesses um, coming back from Spain and France, the Spanish flu, um, undiagnosed at the time. But there were soldiers coming back and they were coming into the Boston port um, and being shipped onto an army hospital mm -hmm. west of Boston. So Eliza reads this and says, there, there's quite a few more cases. And this sounds a little bit more serious than the news is leading us to believe. Um, so she has that calling again and goes to volunteer to help because so many doctors and nurses are over in France um, serving with the army. So she's, um, she's at Fort Devens and um, she has completed her first shift. Besides breaking to use the ladies' room twice and to nibble on two Lorna dunes a nurse shared with her, Eliza's day blurred into a catatonic haze. She could scarcely remember a single name of the men she attended, nor the eight whose names she penned onto death certificates and toe tags. Since leaving West Philadelphia, she could recall at least 25 women and most of their babies too. If she remembered the soldiers' names, would they live? Did blocking their names erase their existence? Eliza checked her watch while she sat outside Dr. Bond's office. 6.50 p.m. The summer sky remained bright outside with the daylight saving law passed in March. Yet the narrow windows denied the sunlight. Darkness prevailed. Starting in her heart, fatigue claimed her body. A throb in her temples spread to a twitch in her fingers. Eliza knew exhaustion on a first name basis. Over her career, it visited her often, made itself at home and settled into her bones. But this debilitation consumed her like any other time. Her life classified fatigue into physical or emotional. Exam study, double shifts at the hospital, 
and looking after two energetic sons required a physical exercise. The heartbreak of losing Patrick, cradling a patient's hands, dealing with Harrison's volatility, or concern over her children's health drove emotional exhaustion. Here, she fought a simultaneous battle. Hour after hour, she tended to patients. She lifted their limbs, walked the rows in an endless loop like Will's train set, and carried trays of water and salves. Her arms and legs numbed. Men died, not one, not two, but eight over the course of nine hours. The enormity of it drained every fiber of her burr. A helpless anguish seized control. I, I can feel her fatigue. You, you did a beautiful job with your descriptions. Thank you. Thank you. And again, a, a lot of that came from watching our medical professionals on television. That was one of the scenes that I, I did revise and edit um, after I had completed it. How long did it take you to write your book? So I consider the entire process of writing. And that really started first with taking an online class in creative writing to hone my skills and to get feedback um, on, on the direction. I used a couple of uh, early chapter ideas as some of my writing assignments. Um, and then a year of research followed by two years of writing and editing. And the editing ranged everything from um, my own little book club, <laughs> my closest friends who are avid readers and, and getting their feedback first as a, just a general reader and lovers of historical fiction as well, to other authors getting their critiques. And I have several uh, friends that I've developed from attending conferences over the years that we swap um, chapters and, and parts of our manuscripts for critiques. So it's so important to continually revise and make sure that, again, you're making the writing and the story relevant to today, today's readers, um, not just to write with your head down with blinders on. Um, so two years of writing and editing, uh, getting ready to find a publisher, what direction for the publishing route was going to be another year, and then another year just getting ready to launch on August 25th. So um, I'm pegging it all at five years <laughs> from um, starting some of that genealogy research and getting the idea sparked to seeing my book on bookshelves in, in bookstores and seeing it listed on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. So uh, very excited. Well, that's not a lot of time when you consider that you work full time. Do you have a writing routine around your work schedule? Are you a morning person or a night person? I wish forever I could be a morning person. I've tried for, let's just say, over 50 years <laughs> to be a morning person. It's just not in my DNA. Um, so uh, the morning I will I will get up and I'll you know have my coffee. I'll do my morning crossword puzzle. And if I've been writing, I will take a glance back at what I wrote the night before and um, and with fresh eyes, do some quick little edits. But the majority of my writing time has been in the evening when, I, when I've had the time um, with a full-time job. Um, so it's usually, you know, after dinner, squirreled away in one of my nooks um, here in my little Cape Cod cottage. It's um, out on my, my screened-in porch, which is just a lovely spot to be where I can close the door and uh, put on my headphones. <laughs> close quarters here. My husband gave me noise-canceling headphones. <laughs> So I don't have to listen to him, to him in the next room with the TV on. Um, 
So it's, it's usually evening. And it also, I think, is a, a nice time to absorb what's happened in my day and see if anything I can use um, in my writing that will come through. Um, you know, just a personal experience or someone I met during the day. And maybe there's a character trait from that person that I want to bring in. So, uh, so writing at night, um, pretty much wherever I am, whether it's here on Cape Cod in New Hampshire, I have a lovely loft space that looks out over to the lake. Um, in Florida, it might be a hotel room <laughs> on Route 95 um, or uh, one of the condos that we rent in Florida during the winter. So um, just you have to find the space. I, I've even written on airplanes, again, with my headphones on when I've been traveling for work um, to make sure that I get in some writing time every day when I'm in the midst of um, the deep writing section. What about all of your historical research? Do you do all of your research in advance or do you uh, work on it as you go along? Well, most of the material for the Unlocked Path uh, did happen first. Um, uh, you know, between online research, reading lots of books, um, nonfiction books that I could get my hands on. There weren't a lot, but uh, a couple um, that talked about women in medicine in the 1800s. Um, I had the incredible opportunity. I was able to go to the archives at Drexel University in Philadelphia. A women's Medical College eventually merged with Drexel. And so Drexel has all of their um, annual reports, old photographs, um, some really cool um, relics, if you will, that I was able to see and touch. So I spent an entire day in that archives. Um, so developed a lot of information, my note cards, I'm still, I guess, old school, <laughs> use some note cards that are spread out in front of me um, to look at. Um, but then during the, the writing, would have to pause and research something. Well, wait a minute, would a telephone be in a, a general household in 1912? How many households actually had telephones um, that would be believable? Um, what were rubber boots called back in 1897? Well, galoshes was a more common term. So, you know, those little details that you want to, you know, fact check um, before your editor facts checks them for you and calls you out. <laughs> so, um, which they also came along as well, you know, and, and even, you know, the language you were using, what were the correct terms? Um, it was a more formal language back then, especially for my characters were educated um, women. So they, they had a different approach to their speaking style as well. Did you find a physical presence of your great grandfather and all of that research? Oh my goodness, I did. This was amazing. And really the highlight of my day, uh, the archivist again at Drexel had, had pulled an entire cart, rolling cart of materials um, from their stacks for me as I got set up in their climate controlled room with the, the gloves on and everything. Um, and I was, you know, paging through um, diaries and annual reports. Um, they brought out this really cool bone box <laughs> that had um, skeleton pieces that each um, student was required to rent for the year um, during her term. And the, the one of the last items they brought out were some original um, black leather bound meeting minutes from the um, first seven years of the board of directors for the college. 
And again, I I had only known that my great-great-grandfather was a founder. I really didn't know his extent or involvement. but it may have only been financial, you know, endowment for all I knew. Uh, but then I opened the pages and I started reading through and there, all those meeting minutes for the first seven years, all the entries were signed by the board secretary, William Shannon Pierce, who was my great-great-grandfather. So I was holding and touching with gloved hands um, these meeting minute books that he had penned in his hand and had signed. So uh, that to me was just incredible and, and brought everything full circle to me. That gives me chills. And he wasn't even my great grandfather, but that's like reaching back in time and getting to know a relative. Absolutely. And I, you know, a lot of the time period is based on my grandmother's life. So it was her grandfather. And, um, and I never knew my grandmother either. She died five years before I was born. Uh, we share the red hair gene, apparently. But um, so I felt then that connection, you know, to him and to her and to her family, and the seven aunts that she had. So there, there's a few aunts <laughs> mentioned in the book as well that influenced my main character, Eliza, named in part for my grandmother, Elizabeth. Janice, I know your book launches this month, August 2022. Any special marketing that you've done pre-launch that you think will help with the visibility for the book? Are there any out-of-box ideas with medical schools in mind? Oh, yes. I actually started marketing, since I have a career and background there, I knew how important it was going to be, um, regardless of which direction I had for publishing. Um, getting my name out there, building my brand from the get-go. So I actually started a blog as soon as I started my online writing class. And it was primarily driven to get some feedback on my writing. But then I started to get some other um, interest. My blog turned and transformed into not just my writing and all about me, but became a forum for reviews. I put together reviews of other historical fiction books that I've read, um, that my book clubs have read, and I moder moderate a book club as well. So I brought those in. Mm -hmm. um, I've started a feature all about um, women in history for March. And I, I spotlight a different either historical fiction or biography every day in March. Um, so it became much more robust. And I, I think that is very important is to provide content for readers or potential readers that positions you as an expert, you know, on writing women's historical fiction. So I, I started early, it continues today. Uh, some of the out-of-the-box ideas I've tried, and I'm open to trying anything, you know. Um, I created little bookmarks and assembled an army of friends around the country. And I said, would you mind taking these bookmarks and putting them in those little free libraries <laughs> that so many towns have? Um, and if possible, I'll even send you one of the books that I've read, historical fiction, um, so that you have a nice donation to make to the library and just stick my little um, bookmark inside. So then I'm thinking if somebody goes to that library, finds a historical fiction title, they might be interested and they open it up. And lo and behold, they see my bookmark, they see my website. So who knows how many potential followers of my website, you know, came through that direction, but it was worth a try and 
for the cost of a, a bookmark from Vista Print for about 30 cents. <laughs> it was well worth it. That's a great idea. What do you think was the best money you've ever spent as a writer? Oh, uh, word to the wise or caution to the to, to the unknowns of uh, getting into this whole writing. Um, their expenses and, and their investments to be made. Um, and you really need to look at um, your book as your investment. You know, what, what are you going to put into it besides your, you know, sweat and tears? Um, and so I, for me, I would say getting to this point, the best investment I made was to attend other writer conferences. Um, you know, the price tag is, is, can be high. They're usually, you know, destination um, conferences, um, but who doesn't want to go to, you know, St. Augustine in February was when I went on. Uh, but it's the other writers that you meet there. So not only are you getting um, workshops where you're developing your craft, but you're also meeting other writers who are in the same boat. And you're interacting with, you know, other potential agents or potential editors, um, you know, trained professionals in the field. And I've met several um, other authors to be and existing authors that have been just invaluable in my journey um, for critique, support, uh, reviewing, and, uh, and just having those cheerleaders on your side too. Um, you know, there's somebody in your corner who knows what you're going through and who will say, get back to that keyboard and keep going, girl. <laughs> I agree. I, I think writers conferences and writing retreats are so important to feed us to to build that community that we need to have, like you said, with other writers. And and I think it's well worth the expense. Do you have any unpublished, half finished or is there another book inside you? There is. And research has begun. I, I drafted even the prologue. Uh, so as I was writing The Unlocked Path, the, the first version actually spanned the entire life of my main character from 1890, well, when she starts medical school in 1897, up until, let's call it retirement age in 1957 or so. Uh, and one of the first pieces of advice that I got at one of those writing conferences from some editors was, great story, but you're a debut novelist. Set your readers up for a sequel. Chop it. So I did. I went back and I, I chopped chapters. I did take some of the content and wove it back in um, to some earlier chapters uh, and then had to rewrite the, the ending, of course. Um, so there's a sequel queued up, mm -hmm. uh, ideas ready to go that will take uh, Eliza Edwards' from uh, the 19, mid 1930s, I haven't settled exactly on that date yet, up until the mid 50s, um, you know, so many of us after 50, you know, we are still working. Um, does she still work? Um, how does she face the prospect of retirement? How does that affect her? Um, not a lot of mature characters we read about um, in any book. So um, I'm excited to, to bring that age uh, we had her coming of age in the unlocked path, and now we'll see um, what the other end of that timeline looks like. And of course, still lots of rich history 
you know, we'll have the depression, we'll have World War II. Um, she will have sons that will be involved with World War II, uh, being of that age. Um, the polio epidemic and the solution for the polio epidemic. So again, lots of uh, rich material to uh, get further into my research. I'm taking hopefully a research trip um, this spring to go see firsthand. I wanna go to uh, Warm Springs, Georgia. I wanna go to Hickory, North Carolina, uh, both um, settings, of course, uh, tied deeply um, to the polio epidemic. Well, I think that's such a wise decision because once your readers fall in love with these characters, they're going to want a sequel. They're going to want to follow their lives. Sure. And and then plenty of other ideas percolating as well, you know, that I already jotted down on my note cards and, and are sitting at the ready uh, for me to get to them, hopefully soon too. Well, Janice, our writers over 50 are a unique set. Do you have any advice for writers 50 and above? Never give up. <laughs> Short and sweet, I guess. Um, believe in yourself. You know, you, you, you should have the confidence by now um, at this age to, to understand that you've lived a rich life and, and you've got plenty more years ahead of you uh, to get things done. So take all those experiences that you've had, um, meld them and, and bring them to life in your characters, in your stories and, um, and make it happen because uh, with, the, with the right determination, it will. I think that's great advice and we just appreciate your time so much today and, and thank you for being with us to share your upcoming book and, and future books and we're excited to now say that you're one of our authors over 50. Thank you so much, Julia. Thank you for joining us today. Please look for Authors Over 50 every Thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50. Please subscribe and share with a friend. And check out my own publication journey after 50 at www.juliadaily, that's D-A-I-L-Y, like dailynewspaper.com. Until next time, keep reading and writing. And remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third.